Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me on this All Saints Day. And we're going to have some wonderful interviews. I'm going to go back into the archives for one of my favorite interviews with the late Father Thomas Dubay on the saints in the beauty of holiness. We'll get to that a little bit later this hour. But what I'd like to do at the beginning uh, of the program is just come up and talk a little bit about Holy Days of Obligation in general. Because today you'll hear people say, uh, even Christians say, that the church doesn't have any authority to establish days of obligation. There are even a, a certain tradition within evangelical Protestantism which doesn't even recognize Sunday as a day of obligation, but could just as well, you know, a church could establish worship on Tuesdays as well as any other day. So this has become more and more common over this generation. And I think for Catholics, we can go to the biblical material on this to demonstrate why the Lord's Day, uh, meaning Sunday, is still obligatory. But what I'd like to do is just go to some of the the catechetical documents that we have. So, in Catechism of the Catholic Church, 2042 and 2043, we learn that the Church uh, has God-given authority to oblige the faithful to attend Mass on certain days. And she's also uh, deemed it wise that we should at least once a week worship together. And so, um, to satisfy this precept of weekly worship, uh, we attend Mass anywhere that a Catholic rite, quote, anywhere that a Catholic rite is followed. On designated holy days, the faithful are obliged to participate in the Eucharist unless excused for a serious reason, for example, illness, care of infants, or dispensation by their own pastor. And those who deliberately fail in this obligation commit a grave sin. So it does make a difference that we attend Mass on Sundays, and on Holy Days of Obligation. In doing so, especially on Sunday, which is called Little Easter, what we do is we recognize the day on which Christ was resurrected. And we show that the resurrection is the hinge upon which history turns. There's no more important event from creation until now than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. Uh, this is uh, important. So when we do uh, gather for Eucharist on Sundays, we are in fact bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it, in that sense, mass attendance is a form of proclamation we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So, important to keep that in mind. It's not just, hey, I'm going to church. No, you're bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. <laughs> Think about that. Now, in addition 
to the bearing witness to Christ's resurrection on Sundays, we've got ten holy days of obligation uh, that we discuss here. Uh, we talk about Epiphany in Christ's body and blood. Uh, we talk about uh, the Ascension Thursday. We talk about uh, the Nativity Christmas. We talk about Mary's Immaculate Conception. We talk about Mary, the Mother of God. We talk about the Assumption, and we talk about today, All Saints Day. All of these days are opportunities for us not only to encounter Jesus in the liturgy. They are also opportunities for us to bear witness to the surrounding culture that there's something more important than the secular calendar. Okay? So stay with me. We're going to talk about the saints and the beauty of holiness coming up with Father Thomas Dubay, going back to an interview I recorded back on November 1st of 2004. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. In this hour, we're going to take time to go back, way back, to November 1st of 2004, where I sat down with the late Father Thomas Dubay to talk about the beauty of the saints and how they are a magnet uh, to attract us uh, to holiness. Father Dubay was one of the more outstanding figures I've ever had the opportunity to interview, and I had the opportunity to interview him a number of times. He was always uh, very um, amenable uh, to talk. He was uh, he had written books uh, on spirituality, which were rich. Uh, a lot of books on spirituality are just rehashes of stuff that's been said before. He focused had a had a, a, a he had specificity in how he talked about the uh, the spiritual life. He he loved uh, Teresa of Avila and Saint John of the Cross. Thought that they were uh, the best examples of uh, those who achieve intimate union with God. But he wrote he wrote uh, a book called The Fire Within, which was something I think people think that's his masterpiece. But he also wrote The Evidential Power of Beauty, uh, Science and Theology Meet. He loved science. He loved the sciences, by the way. So he never saw any conflict at all between science and spirituality. He wrote Happy Are You Poor? Uh, this is a, a very good look at the Beatitudes. Uh, deep conversion, deep prayer. He had a primer on prayer, which I've recommended to people over and over again. Almost anything you find by him, you're going to be happy with. So I'm going to take time and, again, share with you an interview going back to November of uh, 2004. He passed away in September of 2010. But uh, this is our opportunity to hear him again on the saints and the beauty of holiness. Father, it's a great pleasure to have you back with us. Thanks. Thank you. Glad to be here. You've yeah. written that the saints are the most beautiful men and women on the planet. What do you mean? Well, let's start with the gospel, because there's no worldview that comes close to the gospel in its beauty. Nothing. Uh, whether it's in novels or whether it's other religions, I don't mean to be downing anybody mm -hmm. here, but it's just a fact of life that there's no worldview that even comes close to the gospel for its beauty. And the saints are the men and women who live it not only rather well, they live it extremely <laughs> well. Yes. They live it heroically well, almost incredibly. They are moral miracles. Uh, they, they live it so extremely well. I think, for example, of 2 John 6, 
that all the commandments mean what love requires in certain circumstances in our human situation. Yes. Okay? Now, the saint is a person who literally does what that text says toward the end, to live a life of love. So that the saints are men and women, whether they're suffering, being blamed, criticized, abused, tortured, or, or enjoying something, mm -hmm. uh, they're always loving all the time. They, they are clearly the most beautiful men and women on the planet. That would be just one example. Now, all, all the texts of Scripture that are, are dealing with how we're supposed to live, the saints are the ones that live it heroically well. And so this, that brings to their lives an, uh, an attractiveness, uh, and a joy, something that radiates to others that can be recognized as beautiful. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, yes, indeed it does. It brings a radiance uh, in, some t in some cases. Now, by radiance, I mean an unusual thing, which, by the way, I saw in a prisoner once. Yeah. I was speaking. This is just a little incidental sure. thing, but no, it, it, it fits. It fits. Um, I was speaking in a federal penitentiary on the universal call to contemplative prayer and the summit of it, mm -hmm. and uh, I was asked to do that. And so I was explaining that every one of, I said, every one of you guys in this prison is called to the very heights of deep immersion in the Trinity. And I'd said a few words about that. And this one prisoner, I remember he was over right on my right, about 15 feet away, can't forget it. This guy just radiated beauty. A, a, a he was so full of joy to think that that's for me too. Wow. Well, St. Teresa is said to have radiated after communion, after mm -hmm. Mass, and uh, so it, it doesn't happen real often, but that's not the main beauty I'm thinking of now, or it, it's not that frequent, but okay. the, the beauty of the virtue to live a life of love, or as one, uh, as Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 puts it, um, no matter, think of the hardest day of your life, and the, the, the person, the saint, will find even in the most piercing sufferings just a radiant joy mm -hmm. and an awesome strength. It's right in the text, based on his strength. And that's beautiful. I, I, uh, it, one of the things I've noticed about uh, pain in my own life and, is that it's, it, I end up becoming very self-absorbed. My attention uh, kind of collapses in on myself. I'm preoccupied with myself. I find it very difficult to think of the well-being of others, uh, not to mention to actually do something on behalf of others. Uh, the saints, on the other hand, in the Jesus uh, on the cross, uh, prays for his uh, the perpetrators. Uh, how do you do that? How does that happen? That happens only what is right in that text I refer to in Colossians 1, you see. And John of the Cross speaks of a person in the transforming union, the deepest intimacy with God, as, as all, having, quote, an awesome strength. It, it comes from God's strength because the intimacy with God in that degree, degree of prayer, intimacy, closeness, contemplative depth, you see, the closeness with the Trinity is so close that there's a kind of divine strength there. And you can notice in the preface for the Mass of Martyrs, speaking to mm -hmm. God, we've all prayed this. You choose the you God choose the weak of this world and make them strong. That's how the saints can pray for their torturers, can rejoice in piercing suffering, you know, being tortured to death and still happy yeah. as anything. Yeah. It's it's a divine strength. It's that the union. Yep, it's that, that they're union. They're draw, able to draw from that union. Uh, the question that many people have is, how do I even get started? Uh, 
along this path of union. Um, I, we are engaged by the stories of the saints. Uh, we admire the saints. But there seems to be uh, oftentimes a big gulf between who I am and who the saints are. Uh, it becomes difficult to see that they are... Um, it's almost as though they're a special tier of person, mm -hmm. a special tier of creature, and we can admire them, but we don't dare be like them. Well, see, in some ways, we're very much like them, a whole list of ways. Talk about that this afternoon when I speak to the college students, mm -hmm. you see. Uh, they have the same weak human nature you have and I have, and what you mentioned about being self-centered in intense suffering, well, join the club. Yeah. We're all like that until we get deeply converted and more like the saints, because they are other-centered then, capital O yeah. and then capital small O's. But in any event, we get, we get that way, to come to answering your question more explicitly, we get that way through the degrees of conversion. You see, uh, a person has to begin by at least basically loving God and not some idol. And therefore, there has to be that first degree of conversion, I'm going to give up my idol. Whether it's, whether it's vanity, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's, I mean, lust. I'm talking, lust, sex is a good thing, but a lust, mm -hmm. sure. another, it's another thing. So whatever the idol is, that has to be given up. That's the first degree of conversion. Then the second degree of conversion is to give up willed venial sins. Snapping at people. See, it's not a, it's not a sin to, be, to feel impatient. That's not a sin. To, to snap at somebody, I can get over that if I want to. Mm -hmm. uh, I, mm -hmm. I need to get over that. Or if I overeat, or if I'm lazy, deliberately lazy, and mm -hmm. so on, I've mm -hmm. got to get rid of those. That's the second degree of conversion. Then the third degree is to heroic virtue, and that's saintliness. And so anybody has to begin at the very beginning, <laughs> of course. <laughs> if there's a serious idol in one's life, give it up. You can't worship God and mammon, as the Lord said plainly. You, can, you have to take one or the other. And then once one has made the choice of God as my consuming concern in life, then let's get rid of these venial sins. And that's a whole program. Uh, this development, then, of the undivided heart, the, the ridding oneself of idols, you've quoted St. Augustine in this regard. Too little does any man love you, referring to God, who loves some other thing together with you, loving it not because of you. Yes. It's a great... Oh, that's magnificent. Great sentence. That's magnificent. Uh, expound on it a bit. Elaborate. You see, it, since God is <coughs> infinite beauty, goodness, love, everything, absolute, endlessly beautiful, good, loving, full of purest joy, he's purest ecstasy, you see, since that is the case and he is my destiny and your destiny and everyone's destiny... Therefore, I, if I start dividing my heart with some peach pie, I like to use that example. <laughs> peach pie is a good thing, you see. And, and uh, if I take one piece, I can take it for the glory of God. If I say, well, I gave him glory with one piece, I'm going to have uh, two pieces and give him more glory. Of course, that's, <laughs> that's, that's phony. Okay. So I, I have to keep my heart from being divided. That is to seek anything for its sake, and not as related to God, and therefore my own welfare. See, there's, there's no real distinction. There are two sides. There's, well, there's a real distinction in, in the mind, but in reality, the glory of God is the same thing as my good and your good, mm -hmm. you see. Mm -hmm. So that 
if I seek things for his glory, it means my genuine good, your genuine good, and all the rest. So if my heart is totally focused on him in that sense, then then I can love him as he ought to be loved. You mm. see, And it's too little if I've got some little dinky thing, whether it's peach pie or whatever yep. it happens to yep. be, that I seek for itself, then I love him too little. Uh, and in the long run, you don't even like the peach pie anymore, right? Well, well, you lose. No, oh, you can. Oh, you can still enjoy the. Peach you still pie. enjoy, the, but you lose the joy of no, well, God's see, creation. See, the, the delight in something is not an attachment to something, yeah. to the thing. It's not. No, God made things delightful, and there's nothing wrong with being delighted. The problem is that we, in our woundedness, tend to focus on the delight as an end rather mm-hmm. than a crown of an action. Hmm. See, Saint Thomas made the point that every action, and it would be true of a saint. Every action should be delightful. So if I'm really saintly, I will enjoy scrubbing a floor. That's, that's why when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, he means even when things are not going so yes, well. Yes, and yes. I'm in pain, or I've been uh, verbally abused or something. Uh, a saint will rejoice even in that. So the, when your action then, or your enjoyment, or your delight becomes the crown of the action uh, if that action is uh, joined uh, with God. If the crown, see, joy, delight is a natural crown of a good act, yeah. of a good action. Okay, And that's normally good and there's nothing to be gotten rid of. The problem comes in when we start making a little idol or a big idol out of yeah. something created, seeking it for its own sake. My guest is Father Thomas Dubay. We're going to continue our conversation the beauty of holiness, looking at the saints as examples. I'm Al Cresta. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Thomas Dubay, one of the foremost authorities on the religious life. Uh, He has written uh, widely in the field of uh, what commonly is called spirituality. Uh, He's written on the fire within, uh, which is a, a look at uh, prayer in the lives of uh, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross. He's written a wonderful primer on prayer. It's called a prayer primer, Igniting Fire Within, that we recommend often. And uh, Authenticity, a Biblical Theology of Discernment. Is that one of your first books, Authenticity? One of the earlier ones, yeah. not the first. Not the oh, first, no. okay. Uh, I want to talk about the New Testament's description of the saints. When we look at the New Testament, when we see the word saints... It, refer, it seems to refer to all those who are addre- uh, baptized and being addressed uh, by St. Paul. Uh, and yet we know that uh, when he writes to the Corinthians, n- most of us wouldn't think of a lot of those Corinthians as saints. I mean, they were getting drunk at the Lord's table. One man was sleeping with his father's uh, uh, wife, another one. I mean, in other words, there was a pretty big mess. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, there was, if we were all aware of that what going on in any of our local parishes, we'd be scandalized. Mm-hmm. And yet Paul addresses them as saints. What does that mean? Uh, St. Paul is using saints in the sense that the church is, is saintly, even without stain. You see, uh, so that saints there is in a, a more generic sense. Mm-hmm. Namely, they're, they're baptized, as you noted, baptized into Christ and all the rest, but it doesn't mean by any means that he's canonizing all the faithful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, by no means. So, saint in that sense is, is another term for those who, who are holily inserted into Christ. And some have sinned grievously and 
kind of wrecked their spiritual life and the rest. But he's talking about the group. Now, the saints in our sense mm-hmm. we celebrate now are those who have, uh, are in glory. Now, uh, that is in heaven, the beatific vision. Mm-hmm. Not yet risen body, though, except Our Lady, of course, and the Lord. Mm-hmm. But um, so that saints in, in the sense where we were speaking about a little while ago, namely the, those who reach the third degree of conversion, heroic virtue, now they are saints mm-hmm. in the sense of the, the ones who have gone all the way with God, 100%, the people that are canonized, for example. So, number one, they've given up their idols. Uh, number two, they've given up venial sin. Yeah. Number three, they've exercised heroic virtue. And, and not only have exercised it, but habitually do. And, uh, Are they aware that they're doing it? Oh, sure. Yeah, okay. Well, they, and they can, one of their heroic virtues is humility. Yeah. See, they know exactly of myself I am zero yeah. with, with the Lord and what he's done. They know they're great, yeah. but they, they certainly don't parade it, and yeah. they don't make themselves center of things. But uh, Teresa knew she was in the Transforming Union when she was. Yes. John of the Cross knew it, but they, they, you'd never hear them parade it by any means. But yes, uh, and you can't you can't have heroic virtue unless you have all the virtues that are heroic. You see, all of them. So if a person says, "Well, I'm going to specialize in humility," I'll be good at that. You <laughs> see, about patience, that's another thing. Well, that uh-huh. person is not going to be a saint okay. unless they change. Love contains all the virtues, though. Yes, if you love totally with a whole heart, soul, and mind. And, and completely, you will have all the virtues, yeah. yeah. Prudence, fortitude, justice, temperance, you'll have the whole works. Hmm. Uh, what do, you, you do a lot of retreats and a lot of speaking, and I'm sure you get question after question, uh, not, you know, certainly in theology in the abstract, but I'm sure people bring lots of problems to you, things that they're facing, difficulties. Hmm. How can they uh, get on with this uh, uh, direction uh, towards sainthood uh, to live it out consistently. Uh, what is the biggest single obstacle that you see between us, quote, run of the mill Christians and the saints? Is there one significant obstacle? Well, yes, you could put it this way uh, uh, somewhat a generic term, but certainly it's at the core of reality egocentrism. Yeah. You see, egocentrism. Uh, my preference is my way, my pleasure, my delight, my my this, my this, and the, you see, a baby begins existence. They're so cute, little babies, cute as anything. <laughs> Most of them, anyhow. Anyhow, but they're extremely egocentric, yeah. completely. Yeah. So if if they're hungry, why, you know, and and uh, so hopefully, with good parents, they're going to serve and uh, uh, teaching and example first. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to learn how to realize there are other people to con- be considered in this world, and most of all, there's God. Yeah. See, yeah. and we we struggle th- all through life getting trying to get rid of our egocentrism. I am not the center of reality. I- each of us is extremely important. Well, the Lord died for you, and yeah. He died for me too, yes. and He died yeah. for John. Okay. But, uh, but uh, I, I, oh yes, the, the omnipresent woundedness, it's a, an aspect of, the un, um, of this woundedness, basic woundedness, radical woundedness, is our egocentrism. Okay. How do we know when we're making progress in the spiritual life? Then? Well, you will notice by, by giving up 
idols. So if there's a serious idol, to give it up, that's a big step forward. Parable of the Prodigal Son is, is a classic on that subject, just a masterpiece, you see. Okay, and then when, when a person who snaps at others uh, works on it and stops snapping, hey, that's real good progress. And then fidelity to prayer life, mm-hmm. and, and I'm faithful to it, even when I don't feel uh, so good. I mean, I, I'm em- I feel empty, which could be a purifying type of prayer, very good, but I'm faithful to it. That's progress. This is important, I think, to, to emphasize. Many people say um, they don't feel anything when they pray, or they go through periods of time when they don't feel anything when they pray. So they don't feel as though this is very good prayer. Mm-hmm. You're saying that could be, it could be very good prayer. Yeah. There are two kinds of emptiness. Yeah. Let, let, let's call this not okay. feeling good as empty. Okay? There is... There's, a real emptiness, which is due to mediocrity. Because I'm not living the gospel well, and I know it, you see. I'm not giving over my, my showing impatience. I still uh, fight. If a married man, I still fight with a wife and, and all the rest, you see. And I'm not working on it at all. And I'm empty at prayer. Well, of course I'd be empty at prayer. Uh, it's a real emptiness. Because I'm inauthentic to some extent. Mm-hmm. And you can't be intimate with God if you're inauthentic in how you live. Just as a husband and a wife cannot be deeply intimate if they're holding back toward each other in the nitty-gritty of daily life. Okay? Now, that, that's a real emptiness. There is then apparent emptiness. It seems empty, but it is not. And that's the emptiness of the first kind of infused prayer that is purifying. You, you want God, it's there. You didn't produce the desire for God. It could be a yearning for him, pretty strong. Um, and you didn't produce it, it's there. But you feel empty. And distractions come and mm-hmm. go, not deliberate, but uh, the person feels empty. Now that is very good emptiness. I mean, apparent emptiness. It's really a being filled, but the impression you have is empty. Because you're not yet purified enough to receive the delight that God wants to give. Mm-hmm. What about the experience that is often called the dark night of the soul? How does that compare with this purifying emptiness? Mm-hmm. Well, what I just described, John of the Cross calls the dark night okay. of senses. Dark night of the senses. On the sense level. That, that's what I just, I didn't okay. use that terminology, but that's what, mm-hmm. he's, what he's talking about. Now, the dark night of the soul is a, an advanced purifying prayer, which is much more difficult you not only feel empty, but you feel abandoned. You're not really abandoned, but you're not. It gets at the deepest roots of our egocentrisms, in our yes. intellect and our will. See, the first purification is the, the purifying of our egocentrism on the sense level. Okay? Right. Then that second purification, which is an advanced type of infused prayer, and uh, it's very good indeed. So this is the experience of the dereliction of God. I mean, he's go- he appears, mm-hmm. appears go- the absence of God. Uh, apparent absence yes, of God. Yes, the apparent yeah. absence of God. Mm-hmm. What, is the, what's the, uh, uh, what is it about us that we have to go through that experience? What is it about our uh, egocentricity that, uh, that we have to go through that emptiness in order to enter into a deeper union. I assume by the time of that experience, for instance, that 
uh, you know, gross sins, mortal sins, are not common. Venial sins are to a minimum. What is it about the experience of that uh, advanced uh, emptiness that that has to happen? I'm not sure I... Why does it have to happen? Yeah, Yeah. why does it have to happen? The reason is that you and I, I mean, ordinary people... We, we can get rid of our, our egocentrisms, our sinfulness, yeah. only to a certain extent. And we do the best we can. That is why St. John of the Cross begins with the Ascent uh, of Mount Carmel, book one, is on the active purification. Mm-hmm. Let me get busy and, and do what I can do with God's grace, of yes. course. We yeah. always suppose His grace. We're not Pelagians, okay? Um, so that I do whatever I can do to get rid of what's wrong with me. But I can go only so far. And therefore, God has to do that by the first night of sense, purify me on a level I can't get to mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. You see? Then I still need purification in intellect and will, mm-hmm. that whole level of the spirit of the human person. And he does that in the second night. And he does what you and I can't do by ourselves. So this goes beyond even our... Uh, in other words, even if we, we said, Lord... Um, uh, Tell me what it is that has to be changed within me. Uh, this, these things that have to be changed are things that we would not even comprehend on our own, that he has to go deep within us beyond uh, what we consciously are aware has to change? I think, yes, I think that's so. But I also I think it's something that we can comprehend, but we don't succeed in getting over it. Yeah. Okay. okay. Now, now take a married couple or take a priest with a parishioner. Yeah. Anybody can snap at anybody else. Sure. But let's take that fault. You see, a, per- a person realizing that I'm not patient when I deal with people. If I have to be firm, I should still be gentle. All right? But have a dickens of a time doing it. You know, though I know it very yeah. well. Yeah. Now, this person <coughs> should do what he can do by himself, with God's grace, yes. of course. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a point where he's going to have to have passive, that is, received purification from God, mm-hmm. that he will be gentle. Gotcha. Okay? Gotcha. Good. My guest, Father Thomas Dubé, talking about the beauty of holiness, uh, the saints, as exemplars for us. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Thomas Dubé, one of the foremost authorities on the spiritual life, and uh, talking about the beauty of holiness, the saints as examples. We were talking about the experience of the dark night of the soul, the apparent absence of God. And I was was wondering if there's uh, there's an experience that uh, people refer to as uh, a horrifying and terrifying experience where God does seem absent, the universe seems uh, meaningless, 
They've been, uh, the, the, all their aspirations for significance and hope and purpose appear to be uh, futile and cannot ultimately be fulfilled. And it's a terrifying experience. Is that a different experience than the experience that uh, St. John of the Cross has when he talks about the dark night of the soul? One experience being edifying, which eventually leads us to union, uh, the other experience simply being terrifying and destructive. Yes, there's a huge difference. I think that's an excellent question, and it is not uh, commonly addressed. Let's see what we can do yeah, with it. Yeah. The first experience is really the experience of atheism, face square on, yeah. head on. And it reminds me of Dostoevsky's statement in Brothers Karamazov, where he's putting atheism on the lips of, of his characters and then the theistic answer. Mm-hmm. He's talking about that. And he, he has one of his characters say, quote, to live without God is nothing but torture. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Now, yes. Your, first ex- your first description, I think you did a good job on it, by the way. hope you give me a nickel for that <laughs> compliment. But in any event, the, the first one is a terrifying reality. Mm-hmm. You see, because we're not, we're not camels and we're not ducks right. and we're not elephants. Right. We, we are human beings. And as spirit, we got problems. Yeah. I mean, we, we yearn for the infinite. You see, the unending can't help it. The playboy yearns for the infinite, too. His problem is that he's seeking where it can't happen, the mm-hmm. quenching. So, yes, it's, it's, it's horrifying. It's one of the terrors of, of being an atheist and facing up with it. I also think that I'm quite convinced of it, that one of the reasons that silence is so, so neglected in our life, I mean a healthy silence. Mm-hmm. I don't mean a, a solitude in neglecting other people. I don't mm-hmm. mean that at all. Mm-hmm. I mean a, health, a healthy thing. It's not popular because... And, and all the, the, the stimulation of the senses, MTV, for example, flashing things and crashing noises and all this sort of thing, uh, I think a main reason for that, it hurts so much not to have God deeply. The reason we exist, it's an ache. And to, to fill oneself with all kinds of stimulations mm. at least dulls the ache, yes. like a yes. narcotic does. Yeah. Now, that's yeah. one thing, and that's frightful. Now, this John of the Cross purification you refer to in a deep prayer life it is very painful there's no doubt about that and i'm not going to belittle that in the least Mm -hmm. but the person does know that god is god loves the person but but feels as it were suspended between heaven and earth feels abandoned Mm -hmm. like the lord felt it on the cross yes you see deeply it's terribly painful but it's it's completely different from this atheistic nothingness Mm -hmm. so uh, at the uh close of St. Therese Lizot's life, she seems to have this experience of uh, the absence of God. Therese, you mean? Yes, Therese. 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 That's what I say. Yeah, Therese. Therese. Yeah, oh yeah, she she had this, oh yes, it was extremely painful. Yes, but she she knew, and this person is not in the least denying God or at all. But it's a terrifying experience also. I think it's her candor in describing it. Really, I found very moving uh, even as I found it uh, terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. You mentioned the absence uh, of silence, and the, the, the one of the reasons we don't have a healthy silence is that there is this uh, fear, this uh, we overstimulate because we have this yearning for God that we fear won't be fulfilled. Is that a way of... Well, asking? the person doesn't have it. Doesn't have the yearning for God at all? Wait a minute. The person I was talking about in that context was the person who has rejected God in his life, or her life, you see. 
and, and does not have a meaningful relationship with God. And that is, that is bad news mm-hmm. uh, in itself and a terrifying thing to face up with it. Yeah. Whereas yeah. a person in, in the dark night of John of the Cross knows that he's got God and, but, but feels abandoned, experiences mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. sense of it, mm-hmm. you see. But the person is secure and is most intimately united with God and is being deeply purified in this experience. Uh, has, does have the confidence that they are in union, though. They, they have the virtues of faith, hope, and love. Yeah, okay, yes. that's good. That's yeah. good. I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between spirituality and culture. Is it more difficult to be a saint in modern American and Western European culture because of the pace of life, because of the overstimulation, than maybe it was a century ago, five centuries ago, ten centuries ago? I, I think it is. But it, we have to watch, though, on this sort of thing that we don't romanticize other yeah. cas- un- other centuries, you know, in the sure. past and all the rest, and, and make them a kind of unreal, because there were problems then, too. You see, but uh, that being said, I, I think it is more difficult to be saintly today than otherwise. I like to think, for example, or I just thought of it as you were talking, when we were kids in high school, we, we didn't have to nearly what high school kids have to contend with today. Yeah. In the media, for example. Yeah. We yeah. didn't have anything like it. We had no internet and all the availability of pornography, yeah. for instance, on the internet. We d- it just wasn't there. And so in that sense, there, there's far more temptation in our age than in previous centuries or in an agricultural setting, you know, a rural setting. But even in, in the rural areas of the country now, there, there's a contact with most of the media right now. Oh, that's right, yeah. So that... Yeah. Uh, but I think so. I think it's harder. There are many more temptations, and they're more blatant. And there's, there's an, in our culture, is very much steering toward the, uh, the secular. Yeah. See, in, in our U.S. government, uh, the judicial usurpation of, of what belongs to the legislature, you mm-hmm. know, the legislative branch yeah. of the government, yeah. this is a huge problem. It is. It's, it's a huge problem. Yeah. It's discussed some, by some of our best thinkers, too. And I wish I wish the the people in government would take a good look at it honestly. So that also adds to the difficulty of being a saint today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is the pace of life more demanding today than you think when you were growing up? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think we, as we were coming over, John and I, this afternoon, we were just speaking of uh, email and all the rest. You see, and and uh, some people take a habit and some don't. And I, I just have the policy, for example, I just can't handle it. Right. I can't right. get back to home base and find 25, 30 things waiting for me. I, I have enough to answer phone calls that come in yeah. and the mail that's there. Yep. So th- the pace of life is not simply for me, but for a lot of people, it's, it's much more hectic, I think, than certainly when I was uh, in my 20s. Yeah. Uh, when there's the strain on the individual person who's seeking um, sainthood, seeking to be a saint, that's our goal, what is the... Uh, and, and if people fail to become the saints that they were created to be, what is the impact upon the culture generally? I was trying to get at what the connection is between the uh, prayer of our heart and the work of our hands, the the relationship between our inner experience and our outer life, the relationship between spirituality and culture. Well, there's a tremendous relationship. And your question raises in my mind, immediately, or sparks in my mind the thought of, of Newman's statement he a brilliant man. He and he knew history uh, so extremely well, and he made the remark someplace that large groups do not light fires 
it's individuals mm. that light fires. It's the saints that light the fires, <laughs> you see. And to the extent that I am not what I ought to be, I'm part of the problem. Which reminds me of a funny thing you, uh, Chesterton said once. There was some editorial in the London Times, or maybe it was a telegraph, uh, to the what's wrong with the world and so on. Yes, that was yes. the, the point of it. And, and Chesterton wrote back, Dear sir, dear editor, he said, I am sincerely yours, G.K. <laughs> Chesterton. And that's true. I'm part of the problem of the yeah. world. Yeah. If I'm not a saint, then uh, because the saints are the ones that light fires. If you look at history, you will find out that it, large groups, unless there's a saint in the group, and provided the group doesn't smother the saint, yeah. Yeah. you see, and the saint's suggestions are, but it's the saints that light fires. The, the history of the church, the big ones are all the saints. Whether they're brilliant saints like Augustine, Thomas, and Gregory, mm-hmm. and so on, or, or the ordinary saints in the home, uh, married saints included, of course. Mm-hmm. It's the saints that light the fires. Yeah. So they're really so the, they're the culture transformers, even if they're not uh, what we commonly think of as the activists. Th- yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. yeah. Right. Now, let me just give you an example yeah, of this. Go ahead. In in religious life, we have chapters. You know, and a chapter, of course, for those who may not be acquainted with that terminology is a group of religious, they're usually elected or from office, they, they legislate for the religious order. Okay. okay. If you look at the history of religious life, you'll find that general chapters, that's the, the, the whole order, can do some good things, and sometimes do, you see, uh, often, but it's individuals in hmm. the order that light the fires, if any fires are going to be lit. Interesting. The group doesn't do it. Yeah. And the yeah. same with Congresses and in, in, uh, legislatures and, and certainly courts. You see, it's, it's individuals that light the fires yes. that lead the human race and, and really modify. Francis of Assisi covered Europe with his friars. Yeah, yes. Now, the uh, individual, how important <laughs> is it that the individual find uh, support? In, in other words, I want to go off into the... Uh, world of business, say, and I believe God has called me there as a disciple of Jesus, and I am to do my work, my business, as unto the Lord, and I'm willing to, I've got some measure of courage and some measure of uh, Christic frugality. I'm out there on my own. Is that a dangerous place to be on your own? Do you need a small group behind you praying for you, challenging you, holding you accountable? Well, I, I yes, I think we do need. Oh, we do need others. Yeah. That reminds me immediately that uh, Saint Teresa herself makes a statement to the effect that, and here's a woman with the transforming union, you know, <laughs> that, and she said how much help she gets from people are like-minded, you know, and really love the Lord, and how much support she receives from them. So if if Teresa can need yeah. other people, yeah. well, I sure do. Yeah. There's no yeah. doubt about that. Indeed. And you in business or whatever, you, oh, yes, you do need others. We yeah. do need others. Yeah, I, I have seen uh, this when I was younger. I saw many very enthusiastic uh, young Christians want to go out with that, the idealism of uh, the young and also, I believe, moved, moved by uh, grace. But want to go out and they change this, they want to change that, but oftentimes find themselves not anticipating the uh, frustrations, not anticipating the cost of coming up against the mold, uh, the way the world has molded things. And uh, those who succeed seem to be those who have some measure of support from, uh, I don't know, close-knit family or uh, some small prayer group over here, somebody Mm -hmm. who, who... 
they're in relationship with and can hold them accountable uh, so that they don't uh, find themselves either in despair or often uh, self-importance. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then also the example of living and dealing with holy people in your group, yeah. whether it's your yes, wife right. or your children or, or, or the relationship or the prayer group. Uh, a good example is a powerful motivator. Uh, we've only got about uh, 60 seconds left, Father. Yeah. Uh, where do people, whenever, I, whenever you're here, I, I know people are moved to want to live more authentically. And they often feel they are starting over again. Where do you suggest people begin? Well, we have to begin in prayer, communing with mm-hmm. God. Uh, the, the, he is the sole solution of, of whatever our problem is. And we've got to turn to him. So we turn to him in vocal prayer, yes, but let's, let's grow into meditative prayer, which will help us to grow into contemplative prayer and deep intimacy with him. But it has to start with, with turning to him. Yeah. We, we cannot pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Yeah. So d- d- don't start with these elaborate plans. Just start praying. Well, if you're starting from scratch, yes, start praying. <laughs> Father, thanks. I love yeah. having you here. Thank yeah, you very you're much. Indeed. Father Thomas Dubay, talking about the beauty of holiness, the saints as our examples. And again, uh, we'll have further information to follow up. Uh, his book's listed at AveMariaRadio.net. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for being with me as we... Uh, again, show gratitude to the late Father Thomas DeBay for his extraordinary teaching ministry and um, uh, the saints are such an enormous source of inspiration for us. Unfortunately, from my perspective, the books that are written describing saints are frequently, in my mind, fall short of giving us uh, a full picture of their inner life, of their struggles, uh, and of their victories. Uh, I remember when I first read a book by the uh, scholar Peter Brown, it was his uh, book on Augustine of Hippo. It was the first serious biography of a saint I'd ever read. And I can remember saying to myself, after reading that, I felt like I know the man. I felt like he could have been a friend of mine. I felt like I could have sat at his feet and learned. Uh, so there, there are books that are really do get us an encounter with the saint, but I think they're few and far between. Now, coming up next hour, uh, we're going to be talking with Matthew Kelly about living like saints, us, <laughs> and becoming all that God created us to be. So stay with me, and then I'll have some words on what is the nature of holiness itself, because as Catholics, we're all called to be saints, and uh, what does that actually mean? I'm Al Crestley. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for joining me on this uh, Holy Day of Obligation, All Saints Day. My friend Dan Keating wrote a short little book called The Adventure of Discipleship. 
I can remember it caught my eye simply because of the combination of the two words, adventure and discipleship. Most people, and I suspect most Christians, don't associate adventure and discipleship together. I mean, it's not like horse and carriage or love and marriage, all right? The Catholic way of life is usually presented as something rather subdued, tame, habitual, routine, institutional, safe, something that doesn't threaten to shake anyone up. One, it's often presented as boring. And we forget that when Jesus calls us to come and follow him, he doesn't tell us where we're going ahead of time. He doesn't give us a blueprint. The disciple is a learner. And that word disciple in the Greek of the New Testament means learner, student. Not like we think of students today who run around to classes with textbooks. No, they're students who learn at the feet of the master. They become disciples of the master because they want to become like the master. As Jesus said, the disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his master. And that is the essence of holiness, I think. It's that we become conformed to Christ. We are perfected in Christ-likeness. We radiate the Spirit of God. And that doesn't just happen. It is a result of struggle. It's the result of interior battle, and sometimes external battle, uh, because of the challenges the world brings us. We have the challenges of the devil, we have the challenges of the world, we have the challenges of the flesh. So, again, to be perfected in Christ-likeness means that we've encountered uh, these challenges. Coming up, uh, we're going to be talking with Matthew Kelly about living like the saints, and uh, what happens when we have the courage to collaborate with God and pursue our truest self. This is the adventure of discipleship. And I'll also have a few words on what is the nature of holiness. What is it? But let's take a moment here and just move on over to listen to my conversation with Matthew Kelly on rediscovering the saints and learning to live like them. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta on this All Saints Day, learning to live like the saints we were created and called to be. Joining me right now is Matthew Kelly, one of the most effective communicators in the English-speaking world. He's founder of Dynamic Catholic, the author of many books, uh, most recently, Rediscover the Saints. He's also written, of course, Four Signs of a Dynamic Catholic that we've discussed on this program a number of times. And it's great to have you back with me, Matthew. Thank you. Uh, You're welcome, Al. Always good to be with you. This uh, book again brings us face to face with what we are created and called to be, and it also highlights uh, a discomfort that I think many of us have when we think that we are called to be saints. Saints are safe uh, for most of us because they're they're somehow distant from us. I know we're supposed to emulate them and all that, but uh, it seems as though saints are a different breed than uh, the way most of us uh, think of ourselves. That's got to be a bit of a problem, isn't it? Yeah, we do that. We put them on pedestals for a couple of reasons. I think one, yes, we admire them. But another is it does does make them different, and it gives us an an opt-out. It gives us permission to to not follow their path, you know. I talked about, obviously, in the biggest line in the history of Christianity, I talked about the idea of holy moments and how if you and I can collaborate with God today to create one holy moment, that proves that holiness is possible for you and me. Mm-hmm. And what the saints did was they, they replicated that hundreds of times a day. They, they, they just kept creating holy moments. And we look back at their lives and say, wow, 
he lived a holy life or she lived a holy life. It isn't true. They lived a lot of holy moments. And you start out the book, though, with a man who uh, you might call him the first saint. Uh, and again, it's the saint who was a thief. Tell us the story. You know, I always like to start with a story. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do too. Introduce the book. It's, uh, you know, it is the story of the, the, the good thief, as, as we call him, uh, on the cross. And, and Jesus, you know, humanized obviously his story, his journey, showing that, you know, he was hungry as a child, you know, parents kicked him out, you know, his sort of career as a thief. Is, is essentially the story. And then he ends up encountering Jesus at different times throughout his story, and then finally on the cross. And, and, and Jesus says to him, of course, on the cross, uh, I promise you today you'll be with me in paradise. And so I named the story the first saying. The idea of the story came from a very good friend of mine, Father Bob Sherry. You know, when I'm looking to write a book, I always like to start with a story, and I always go to a group of people and say, hey, I need a great story. <laughs> let's, let's come up with something, or if you've got something, share it with me, or that sort of thing. And so, you know, that's the story I start the book with, and it's, yeah, it's been very powerful, I think, for people. I think it's great, because yeah. Because we, we need to humanize. I think one of the mistakes we make with the scriptures is we suck all the humanity out of it, and, mm-hmm. and we don't realize the frustration the disciples would have had with Jesus at times, or, or vice versa. And, um, you know, whether that's, at, you know, in the morning when Jesus says, all right, you've got no fish, go back out fishing again after they've been fishing all night, mm-hmm. they would have been tired, they would have been frustrated, they would have been discouraged. And, they, they, you know, what they would have wanted to say to Jesus you know, it's probably, no, Jesus, we want to go home take a nap. <laughs> you know, and, and very often I think we lose that humanity when we read the scriptures. Yeah. We, we, we eject it or we discount it. You, you point out along these same lines that the world doesn't need another Francis of Assisi. It doesn't really need another Mother Teresa or Ignatius of Loyola or Teresa of Liso. The world needs us as saints, uh, in the distinct way that will reflect Christ, refract the light of Christ. Is this something, when I was a kid, I was raised Catholic, when I was a kid, I don't recall anybody ever giving me this impression, that I was called to be a saint in as every bit of way that Mother Teresa, of course we didn't know about her then, but uh, St. Saint, Saint Francis of Assisi, or Ignatius of Loyola, was, do you think Catholics today have a better grasp that they are called to be saints? So in the four signs of a dynamic Catholic, we talk about the 7% of Catholics that are most highly engaged in America. And, and the research we discovered about that 7% and the other 93%. That 7% is very aware, I think, that they are called to be saints. Um, and called to live holy lives and grow in virtue. Um, the other 93%, no, I don't, I don't think they're more aware than yeah. I was as a child or you were as a child. Right. And, and that's the tragedy, right? I right. Mean, the genius of Catholicism hasn't been revealed to them because this is a central, I mean, this is the goal of the Christian life. So it's like, where are we going? Without that, we, the Christian life really loses direction yep. and it really... It's like a leaky tire. It, it just, mm, it just doesn't work, right, you know. Right. Um, and, and of course, how we engage them in that conversation is something we talk about all the time at Dynamic Catholic because language is very important. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is 
my language of the best version of yourself, the idea that God has a dream for yep. you to become the best version of right. yourself. You know, and, and that's just a different way of expressing the universal call to holiness, which yep. is obviously the central theme of Vatican II. And, but it's, it's a way people, some people are able to hear it, whereas if I talk to them about the universal call to holiness, they're not able to hear it for whatever reason. Right, right, right. Let's stop trying to work out what the reason is, and let's come up with a way to engage them. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, you, the book is structured, uh, uh, you refer to a lot of saints, but it's important to point out, this is not a, a collection of saint biographies. Uh, there are plenty of books like that already. You're doing something different when you talk about uh, St. Augustine, you know, or, or when you talk about uh, you know, St. Teresa of Avila. How, uh, let us know, how, what are you doing here uh, different than a lot of these um, saint book collections? It's a great question. It really is. And Al, this is the hardest book I've ever written. I've written more than 30 books. This was wow. the hardest book to write. The reason is there's so many books about the saints. So how do you do it in a way that is new and fresh and engaging? Yeah. And I really struggled with it. I went through five or six concepts for the book. That doesn't usually happen. And you know, what I ended up with was tracing the saints through my life. Going back to the beginning of my life, I was born in St. Martha's Hospital in Sydney, Australia. You know, my um, parents named me Matthew, you know, went to this parish, that parish, this school, that saint, these sorts of things. And what I did was I traced all the saints through my life, whether I was aware of them at the time or not, and I looked at what, what were the questions they were posing to me, or what's the question they posed to me, and and what lessons were they trying to teach me at the time, or what lessons are they trying to teach me now? Mm-hmm. What I really want the reader to do is to have this experience and then go back and sort of do the same thing. Go through their lives and say, okay, what saints have come through my life? What saints have intersected in my life? Hmm. And what were they trying to teach me? What are they trying to teach me? Um, and as I point out in the book, too many Catholics know too little about the saint that is the painted saint of their own parish. Right. And that's always a good place to start. Yeah, yeah. No, very good. Uh, you also include here uh, those who are not, uh, a few that are not considered, quote, canonized saints. Uh, tell us about those. Yeah, I mean, it's a great, um, we're back to language again, right? I mean, what, what the definition of a saint is, mm-hmm. um, it has a number of definitions. So obviously, if, if you read Paul, um, and he's talking about the saints, you know, or you are saints, and and this kind of language, he was talking about the faithful, um, and obviously they're called to be saints. And so um, in our highly evolved form of Catholicism today, we generally talk about saints as um, as those who have been canonized, uh, which is, is good, um, but it is easy to forget that most saints are not canonized. Mm-hmm. You know, the right. great majority of saints, the church teaches us that the church chooses a few to bring attention to the fact that you know, this is the goal of the Christian life. This is the, the pinnacle that we, we strive for, we reach for. And so uh, very often, you know, I mean, your grandma or your great-grandma, mm-hmm. 
God, God willing, she's in heaven. She's with the saints. She's with God. Um, probably never be a canonized saint. Um, and so I wanted to make that point because it's, I think it's important in bridging that gap that you spoke about earlier where we can tend to treat the saints as like another race or another breed or different to ourselves. Yes, yes. Uh, tell us the story of one of those saints uh, from your own life and experience that uh, the rest of us are unaware of right now. That's oh, a great, that's a great question. You know, there's, um, I do talk about uh, Mother Mary McKillop, who is yeah. Australia's first saint, um, and, and only uh, recently canonized. Yeah, a very appropriate saint um, for this time of our history, too. Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I think so. Um, she had a lot of struggles as as a woman in the church. She had a lot of struggles as a woman in society trying to to bring about real change, trying to bring education, health care, you know, et cetera, to the poor of of Australia, um, and especially to women, and obviously as the founder of an order within the church, which is it's never easy. Um, and at one point, a bishop tried to to seize all the assets of the order, um, and and Mother Mary McKillop, you know, she she resisted, um, and and was considered being disobedient to her bishop. Um, and interestingly, when the media, uh, when she was canonized a few years ago, the media completely focused on this one aspect of her life. <laughs> and of course, that was that was like mm, a few weeks in her life, and all the great work she did was um, was sort of overlooked for this you know, sensational piece of her life where she sort of butted heads with a bishop. Right, right. And, um, <laughs> and so that, I, I think, is, is one of the things in the book that um, probably most Americans are not familiar with. Right, um, right. And, I agree. And, of course, being from Australia, we have great pride. That's why the church tries to find, you know, men and women of exceptional virtue to canonize from every part of the world, because we take pride in the saints that are of our own age. Yeah, yeah. Um, in your own, uh, you mentioned Walter here. Tell us the story of Walter. So Walter is my eldest son, and um, you know, interestingly, becoming a father radically altered my spirituality, um, and I would not have thought that to be possible at the time. Obviously, I. Uh, I've been trying. I was trying very hard to live the faith for many years before um, my older son Walter was born. And but being a father, you know, I, I, just something clicked. And our image of God is so important. It affects us in so many ways. Our spirituality and our life, our relationships, are so affected by our image of God. For whatever reason, I had always believed that God loved us and that God loves me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I picked that up at school or from my parents or from other people, probably a combination of all of those things. Um, but I'd always believed that. But when my son was born, it was like overwhelming. It was like, okay, hold on a minute. <laughs> I am broken. I am weak. I am limited. I am flawed. I have all these failures. And I love this little baby so much, and if I can love this much, 
imagine how much God can love in his perfection, mm. and and that sort of exploded my spirituality yeah. in any way. Wow, that's great. I want to thank you again for taking the time to be with me today. I know how busy you are. And uh, love, I didn't realize that you're up 30 books now. Um, that's amazing. It's a tremendous amount of uh, work that you've been able to accomplish. And uh, I want to thank you for being with me today, Matthew. How do people stay in touch uh, with your work? Always a pleasure. Yeah. Always a pleasure. DynamicCatholic.com, you know, they're doing incredible things. Great First Communion program with animation just mm-hmm. released a few months ago. Baptism program coming out, marriage trip program, confirmation program. They're doing amazing things at Dynamic Catholic. It's an incredible group of people. So I just encourage people to visit dynamiccatholic.com and just check out what's going on. Thanks, Matthew. We'll talk again. Very welcome. Matthew Kelly is uh, author most recently of Rediscover the Saints. This is a, this is a book about saints um, that I don't know anything quite like it. Um, it's not just you know these little uh, biographies of saints. This is actually how to engage with the saints, um, how your life interfaces with the saints. And uh, it has 25 questions that will change your life. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. It's All Saints Day. And so why not talk about saints? Talk about... Holiness. Talk about what the objective is of the Christian life, which is, of course, what? Conformity to Christ. So we has his life living within us. So let me tell you a story. Jacques Maritain, one of the 20th century's greatest Catholic philosophers and thinkers, played a defining role uh, in developing the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. Well, back in the summer of 1901, he and his future wife, Raisa, were studying the sciences, uh, the natural sciences in Paris, and they had developed an intellectual infection, uh, scientific materialism. And that's the belief that life is nothing but impersonal matter, randomly in motion, no soul, no purpose, no meaning. And the couple had fallen into a pretty deep despair, in fact, so, so much so that they swore a suicide pact if within a certain period of time they failed to find any purpose in this materialistic universe. A friend of theirs brought them to a series of lectures by a a famous French philosopher, Henri Bergson. And after listening to Bergson, they began to say, well, maybe we can believe, honestly believe, that life is more than matter in motion. And then they also visited an eccentric genius, a novelist by the name of Leon Bloy, who also lived in Paris. And he had a reputation for spiritual wisdom. They developed friendship, and in 1906, June, in fact, of 1906, Bloy became their godfather, and they were received into full communion to the Catholic Church. That's, again, Jacques Maritain and his wife, Raisa. Bloy's novel, The Poor Woman, closes with a very famous line. The only sadness is not to be saints. The point behind it is that to be less than a saint is to be less than the man or woman you were created to be. This is the ultimate sadness. It's the ultimate despair. We were created for communion with God. And this requires our sanctity. It's not proud, it's not arrogant to aspire to be what God created you to be. And he created you to be a saint. He created us to be perfectly conformed to Christ. We are the people 
that he created to know and do his will. And yet you hear people say, and this includes Catholics, oh, I can't, I can't live a life like that. I mean, what, what, what do you think I am, a saint? Well, yeah, that's the call to holiness and perfection and maturity is for all of us. It's the universal call to holiness. It's not the elite call to holiness. It's not just religious and ordained who get called to holiness. And St. Paul addresses this uh, this in, in his letters uh, regularly. I mean, he's writing to the, the wayward, confused, <clears throat> immoral Christians in Corinth or Thessalonica, or Philippi, and he says, to all God's beloved who are called to be saints, or I, Paul, write to you, the saints of Corinth. Now, the Corinthian Christians were among the most confused and corrupt of the churches, and yet St. Paul says, holy ones, saints. He calls them saints even before they've fully become what Christ has called them to be. He calls them saints in anticipation that Christ isn't going to stop until he finishes his work of redemption in them. So, even in the New Testament, the word saint is applied to all believers, those who have been united through baptism with Christ. It's only later in the history of the church that we apply the word saint to those who are, quote, canonized and held up for, as public models for us. But in the first century, saint applied to all those who had been sanctified, set apart, by baptism and faith in Christ. So let me demystify this word saint just a little bit here. It can mean holy one, it can be called saint, it can be set apart one. In Hebrew, Old Testament Hebrew, and also New Testament Greek, the word for translated holy one or saint means set apart. It means different. It means peculiar. It means uncommon. The saint participates in the otherness of God, the, the metaphysical otherness of God and the moral otherness of God. He is uh, God is metaphysically and morally other than this world that he created, right? And so the saints are also supposed to be distinct from this world, both morally and because of their union with Jesus metaphysically. Now, holiness is, is commanded throughout the Old Testament. I mean, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So this is right at the Exodus, after the Exodus, excuse me. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Consecrate yourselves and be holy. Do not make yourselves unclean, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And you find this throughout the uh, the Mosaic books. Uh, Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19, uh, be ye holy for I am holy. That phrase comes from Leviticus. And at that time in Hebrew history, it was an urgent command because there was sin in the camp of Israel and God's plans were being thwarted because the people of God were carnal. They were fleshly. They were corrupt. Israel had been called out of Egypt to be a holy people a peculiar people, a distinct people, they were supposed to be modeling a different, a peculiar way of life from the surrounding nations. Now, it's just as true today that if God's plan is to be accomplished in our generation, then he needs vessels that are sanctified, cleansed, different, distinct, peculiar by the word standards, not, quote, normal, 
Christians are supposed to be not quite in step with the world. We're supposed to be marching to a different drummer. We uh, are formed by a kingdom not of this world. So in the Old Testament this was true, and in the New Testament it's true. So Peter, in his first letters, writes, Be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I, that is the Lord, is holy. Uh, St. Paul to the Thessalonians, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, or your holiness. Here's a a statement uh, pretty sobering. Without holiness, no man shall see God. So how important is holiness? Well, without it, you can't see God. In the Old Testament, holiness is mentioned a thousand times. In the New Testament, 300 times. It's important. And the way to get a handle on this is to go back to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The most common word to describe a follower of Jesus is disciple. And disciple is a learner. That's what the word means. Disciple is learner or student. The saint is the disciple at the end of the process. He's the one who's been fully shaped by the master, not by the world, not by the surrounding society. But as Jesus said, when a disciple is fully trained or formed, he will be like his master. Even though the disciple is in the world, he's not of the world. He's other than the world. His kingdom is not of this world, because his master's kingdom is not of this world. And this is what leads to St. Paul saying, the 12th chapter of Romans, the first verse, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be squeezed into the mold of the world's priorities and values. You are being shaped by the master of this universe. So this indispensable quality for the saint is non-conformity to the world. Saints aren't afraid of being different. They're not afraid of not fitting in. In fact, they know they don't fit in. Uh, They wake up one day and they realize, hmm, I'm not that well adjusted to this world. I mean, they might be, I mean, generous, kind. Uh, They might be joyful, even playful. But when all is said and done, the world looks upon the saint as being someone with a very different set of priorities. Money, sex, and power are not what they live for. Now, is this too lofty? Is it too mysterious? The answer is no. We are called to be disciples. We've been invited to be disciples so that we might become saints. You know, This is not just a matter of partaking of the sacraments. It's a matter of allowing the grace that comes through the sacraments to change our attitudes and behaviors. And how does this happen? Well, (laughs) we're working out our salvation. God's at work within us. We're not alone. That's the first thing to keep in mind. You don't get to do this on your own. It's the Holy Spirit prompting you. Uh, Your hunger for God your admiration, adoration of Jesus, your desire to be a disciple of the Master, that is the work of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. So keep that in mind. This is not merely your work. It's Christ's work within us. And the easiest way to get started on this is, I think, 
Just pick up the Bible and start to get a picture of what you're supposed to look like. What is the saint on earth supposed to look like? Get a good picture. Read the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for righteousness sake. Again, because you're out of step with the world, you don't quite fit in. Rejoicing in tribulation, uh, light of the world, salt of the earth. That person's you. (laughs) Don't think that that's somebody else. That's you. The Beatitudes are a description of what every one of us as a Christian is supposed to be. This isn't for exceptional Christians. Our Lord doesn't say that he's painting a picture of what certain outstanding characters are going to uh, be. Uh, It's a description of every single Christian, every single disciple. You know, Catholics, I think, often allow our priests and our nuns and our canonized saints to kind of do the heavy lifting here. You know, when we let them do the heavy lifting on sanctity, we let ourselves off the hook. Wrong. Dead wrong. Take Again, get familiar with the scriptures here, and you'll find out that St. Paul is saying, you're an apprentice to Jesus. You're his disciple. So Romans 8.29, For those whom God the Father foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. John 13, for I, the Master Jesus, gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, put on the Master. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me, St. Paul says, just as I also am of Jesus. Be imitators of God, he writes, as beloved children. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. For you have been called for this purpose, Peter says. Since Christ also suffered for you, he left you an example for you to follow in his steps. These are the apprenticeship verses. This is our fundamental identity. This is the heart of the new evangelization, transformation in Christ. We're going to talk about it in the next segment as well. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta on this All Saints Day. We're talking about holiness, sanctity, becoming a saint. And that's really what we are called to be. We really have to keep this in mind. I think one of the biggest problems in my life growing up, and I never, I actually didn't accomplish it uh, until I was quite old. But as a kid, when I heard about this stuff, holiness, be a saint, you know, to me, it really was joyless. It, It sounded like the church was saying, obey the rules. No, that's not what the church is saying. Yes, of course, obey the rules, but that's not holiness. That's legalism. What the church is saying, be different. Be transformed in Christ. Find your identity in Jesus. You will be fulfilled. You will learn to be all that you were created to be in Christ. So that's why all of these apprenticeship verses that I'm talking about, you know, where you as the disciple are being apprenticed by the master, all these things uh, lead to transformation in Christ. That's, I was in my 20s, in my 20s before I realized that that's what um, these biblical passages were talking about. We begin as apprentices. We begin as disciples 
uh, and we conclude as saints, fully realized, and our lives are perfectly conformed to Christ. The process begins right now. Eternal life begins right now, not in some distant future. And I don't know how to put this uh, more bluntly, but we are called to be saints, and, and the solemn truth is that if we refuse to become saints, the only alternative is hell. Yes, there's a purgatory, but you don't aim for purgatory. You aim for sanctity. You know, church doesn't teach purgatory. She can postpone striving for holiness. Good heavens. Our eye should be on the prize of Christian perfection, conformity to Christ. And unfortunately, Probably most of us don't even have close friends, never mind a parish, in which people are really energized and motivated and excited by the idea of becoming like Christ and tasting the powers of the age to come. You know, too often in our churchiness, we forget, we don't grasp uh, this high calling. We don't have a good picture of it. There's there's a funny story told by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. He describes a, a town in which... Only ducks live. And every Sunday, the ducks waddle out of their house. They go down to Main Street to their duck church, and they waddle into the sanctuary and squat in their duck pews. And the duck choir waddles in and takes its place, and the duck minister comes forward, and he opens their duck Bible. I mean, I guess ducks, like every other creature, has their own translation. And uh, he reads to them, Ducks, God has given you wings. And with wings you fly, you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls will confine you, no fences will hold you. You have wings, God has given you wings, and you can fly like birds. And all the ducks shouted, Amen. And then they waddled home. That is a great picture of what I think, the way many church people feel uh, after they attend Mass. They hear of their potential in Christ. They even um, engage in the Eucharist in which they receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, in which they participate in the powers of the age to come. And they agree with all the doctrines uh, that they're born again, that they're sanctified, justified, glorified. But in the end, they don't act upon what they've heard. They simply say, Amen, and then walk on as though they had not encountered the living Christ, the Holy One of all eternity. This is a, this is a problem. There's no... Um, the, the easiest way to try to get beyond this is to just stay immersed in the picture of who Jesus wants you to be in Scripture. I, for me, this is what, what worked. Actually beginning to realize that it was his choice his creation of me that allowed me to get excited about becoming not only a follower of Jesus, but wanting him to live his life through me. Now, uh, you know, holiness is a, is a concept which historians of religion talk about quite a bit. And uh, I think it's worth pointing out a few insights from them, because I've, I've wondered about this partially because of my own family, and partially because of friends, partially because I've served as a pastor uh, early on, and always wondered what motivates people to, to live uh, a consistent Christian life. How do they do it? 
Because the problem is desire. The problem is motivation. And I, I've come to conclude that it's very difficult for human beings to hunger for God, to hunger for sanctity, without encountering, without first of all encountering God. Um, this is this is an experience uh, which is transformative. You know, years ago there was a, a historian of religion called Rudolf Otto wrote a book, a very influential book in its day, called The Idea of the Holy. And one of the points that Otto made is that people have a hard time describing an encounter with holy, with the Holy One. It it's, uh, defies full explanation. People always experience holiness as something other than where they are and what they are at the moment. Uh, also, encounter with the Holy elicits fear, a kind of tread, a kind of trauma almost. And you see that in the Old Testament, right? You see time and again, Isaiah 6 is usually the example that's used. You know, this is where Uzzah, uh, King, King uh, uh, Uzziah dies, and, and uh, King Uzziah dies, and, and Isaiah uh, is in the temple, and he's praying there, and all of a sudden there's this vision that he has. You've got the seraphim with six wings. With two wings, they cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. With two, they're flying. And they're calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the earth, whole earth is full of his glory. And people like to point out, this is a, a triple attribution. Holy, holy, holy. That's about, it doesn't, you don't say, that's extreme holiness, Right? They don't say love, 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 or justice, justice, justice. They say holy, holy, holy. And that is very, very, very holy, right? That's the way uh, Hebrews deal with comparatives. They, they repeat. Uh, they punch it up another notch. So holy, holy, holy. And what happens to Isaiah? Isaiah says, woe unto me, for I am undone. His identity is unraveling. He's having a crisis. Who is he? He is undone in the presence of God. He sees truly and rightly, correctly, accurately who he is in proportion to the holiness of God, the existence of God. And that changes him. Uh, he has a, a flaming coal touched to his lips so he can properly proclaim uh you know God in all of his holiness, and that is that's an important point of this whole thing without encountering the living Christ, I think it's difficult to long for him again that's it's up to God to give us the actual graces we need right to to so our desires change, and I think the way there's a there's a there's a set of instructions that are used in uh, monastic life and also in, in, in the sanctity of the laity in order for God to touch us in a certain way. Because which of us doesn't want our desires changed, right? I mean, you know, you grow in... Uh, I remember talking to a monk about this. I mean, we were talking about some... He was doing a little bit of spiritual direction for me. And I said, you know, how long, how long do I 
deal with this, uh, this, this, this ongoing besetting sin. And he said, well, you, you just you keep fighting, fighting back. I said, well, when, when's it going to be, when am I going to get through it? He said, well, uh, we, I don't know. It may stay with you throughout your life in this world. It may be something that's only going to be jarred uh, upon the, the shock of death. Now, again, this is advice that he was giving me personally. I'm not necessarily saying this is applicable to everyone. But his point was, we have to recognize that we have a struggle in this world. Our desires aren't all that they should be. Even St. Paul in Romans 7 says, I don't do the things I ought to do. I do the things I ought not to do. Why? How long is this going to go on? Now, that's in Romans 7. Now, in Romans 8, oh, that starts out a whole new way. He starts out saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Romans 7, he's struggling about holiness. He's struggling about becoming the man that he was created to be. And it's painful. And this is a man who has encountered Christ on the Damascus Road. So he's had an encounter with the living God. But he's still struggling in Romans 7. But in Romans 8, it's his awareness of who Jesus is that enables him to pick up the victory and move forward. So this is why I say we don't wait until there's a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us. We don't wait until we um, you know, have an encounter uh, with Christ. We don't try to screw ourselves up or manipulate our psychology here either. But there are things we can do to predispose ourselves to be touched by God and to have our desires transformed, or at least bent and turned in a better direction. Number one, for me, open the text of Scripture. Look at what we're supposed to be. Look at the Beatitudes. And remember, that's you. That man that Jesus is describing there is you. Read those passages of St. Paul describing the so-called saints in Corinth and what they're supposed to be, or in Thessalonica. That's for you. It's not for somebody else. It's for you. And in time, I think, one gets gets starts to get excited. Uh, Eucharistic adoration, another place that I have found most useful in helping to uh, restart in me this encounter uh, with Christ by which my desires are changed and I've begun to hunger for holiness. Well, I have a few thoughts on, on this All Saints Day of trying to become what we were created to be. He calls us saints. That's because he's at work making us saints. And this is a day of great celebration because of that. We look at those who have completed the process. We ask for their help. But never forget that saint is you. Well, thanks so much for being with me on this All Saints Day. I hope... Uh, what we shared was edifying, uh, building you up and building me up in the faith. 
Um, you know, following Jesus is uh, to invite conflict with the world that rejects him. It requires the courage to be different from your neighbor, even as you love him and live like a pilgrim who's not at home in this world. In some parts of the world today, to live so sacrificially that martyrdom is even possible. We're living in an age of martyrs uh, today. Now, in the United States, we are still quite comfortable by comparison. But even here, it's not unusual to, for various types of harassments to occur if you're seeking to live a, a faithful Catholic life. I mean, even ta- taking a day uh, off of work to uh, pursue a holy day of obligation uh, could, you bring, could bring you in conflict. Um, with the uh, your employer, uh, and again, you you do what you believe Christ has called you to do, but certainly these holy days of obligation, we are expected at the very least to encounter Jesus Himself with the Holy Eucharist, in other words, Mass to go there. Mass is a window on eternity. It's where we get a chance to see visibly the kind of men and women Christ is producing to share eternity with. I love to think of the liturgy as a a door that swings both ways. It's a door that allows us to peek into, again, eternity. And it's also a door that allows Christ to come and enter us First in the afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.